while we were under contract, another buyer showed up and paid us $250,000 to essentially walk away. And so we didn't have to put any equity up and we basically made $250,000 to do nothing. Are you ready for the best real estate investing advice ever? Join Joe Fairless and today's best ever guests as they share it with you. It's the best ever advice with none of the fluff. Let's go. Heard of crowdfunding and still curious about how you can benefit from it? Well, we've got a step-by-step guide put together just for you by the best ever team and patch of land, the industry's leading crowdfunding experts. The best crowdfunding crash course ever, episodes 152, 159, 166, and 173 will provide you all you need to know to get started and begin benefiting immediately. Whether it's getting access to funds for your project or passively investing in other people's deals. The time is now to get started with Patch of Land. Go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever to grab your copy of the top 10 answers to the top 10 crowdfunding questions. That's P-A-T-C-H-O-F-L-A-N-D.com forward slash best ever. Hi, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. I'm here with today's guest, John Drackman. Hi, John. Hi, how you doing? Doing well. Thanks for joining us. John's joining us all the way from sunny California, where he is the president and founder of Stillwater Investment Group. He successfully has executed over $350 million worth of value-add real estate acquisitions. And he finished, was it first place in the Boston Marathon last year? I can't remember what you said. I think it was technically like 7,000th place, but you know... Oh, oh, I, I must have mixed that up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but I finished. That's the most important thing about a marathon. That's true. That's very true. That is uh, one more marathon finished than I've done. So congrats on that. <laughs> Thank you very much. With that being said, John, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Yeah. So uh, I've been in commercial real estate now for 11 years. Um, started off as a leasing broker here in Orange County. And then after spending about four years as a leasing broker, went back to graduate school where I attained my MBA and then my master's in real estate development degree from USC in Southern California. And I worked for a firm called Greenlaw Partners for about five years after school. There I did mostly value-add and opportunistic office and industrial acquisitions throughout Southern California and Arizona. Uh, I left the firm about a year ago. Uh, to start my own firm, Stillwater Investment Group. And uh, since starting the firm, I just completed my third acquisition. So done about, I think it's an aggregate value of about $40 million worth of deals. And they've all been, call it value-add or opportunistic office deals uh, in Southern California. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about value-add office deals. What are you looking for in a deal? You know, I traditionally uh, like deals where I feel that I can add value from either a construction or a asset management slash leasing perspective. So I am not one who wants to take on development risk. So I traditionally focus on existing assets. Um, Most of the time, they're office and industrial assets. Call it over $3 million dollars. Um, because that's really where I have the best broker relationships and really the best track record. And it's really where my career has been mostly focused. And so I'm really looking for deals where I can buy at a good basis. I feel there's a good story to the deal where I can add value through either, you know, changing the lobby of the project, doing new construction, changing the look and feel of the project, 
leasing it, um, putting together an effective marketing plan, and really executing on that plan, uh, moving quickly through the project, and then uh, traditionally selling. So most of the assets that I've worked on um, have not been long-term holds. I have worked on some that have been, but the vast majority are assets where I'm traditionally acquiring, executing a business plan, and hopefully disposing of within, call it, two to five years. You mentioned a lot of ways to add value. You said you know changing the lobby, change the look and feel, putting together an effective marketing plan. Let's dive in a little bit to each of those. Changing the lobby, have you done that before? And can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I have. I've I've bought a, a couple of different projects that were you know projects call it built in the mid to late '80s during one of the you know big kind of commercial real estate development booms in this country that owners had bought them. Um, traditionally with office too, the one challenge is you, you find that they're very capital intensive if you hold them over the long term. So these were assets where the lobbies were dated. It was old, you know, marble, old tile. Um, one of them had old wood in it where it was just kind of old and tired. The corridors were tired. The restrooms were tired. Everything about the entrance to the building, the hardscape was just tired and worn. Um, obviously, uh, like most real estate assets, but especially office, office gets beat up a lot because you have a lot of people coming and going, right? And so um, I've worked with um, some great architects to really redesign lobbies and really make them more modern, adding features that make them, you know, both potentially creative in nature, but also really that are much more inviting for tenants. That can be much warmer, changing out the lighting, changing out the flooring to make sure that things seem fresh and new. You know, with office buildings, you can't really, most of the time, do a lot to the exteriors outside of repainting. So a lot of the time, it's that experience for a tenant as they walk up to the project and as they go through the building, I think is really, really important. So that's kind of, from a construction standpoint, one of the big things that I've done. How do you quote and determine the price that it's going to cost to get all of this done whenever you're making an offer on a deal? You know, it's a great question. Some of it is an art. Some of it is a science. Some of it is definitely kind of putting your thumb in the air and doing a little bit of a wag, if that makes any sense, <laughs> um, and kind of a guesstimate. But I think it's really having very close relationships with architects and contractors where you can do some very prelim design stuff, design work, I should say, that you can get sort of prelim bids at from a contractor. I'm actually doing it right now on a deal in Long Beach where I'm working with an architect. You know, I have some thoughts about how to redesign a lobby. They're going to put some pen to paper in a very short order, and I'm hoping, you know, before I go hard on this deal to have some rough numbers from a contractor. But um, it's also a lot about the more of them you do or you're involved with, the more you kind of, you can guesstimate yourself. So that's one big benefit. But it's it's definitely not an easy process. It definitely, um, I've found that sometimes you can underwrite one thing and you get into it and you find out the costs can be higher. So it's, uh, it's definitely not easy. But again, the more you do them, the more you can kind of get a general sense of, I think it's not going to... If this lost project costs X and this project we're doing something similar, well, I don't think it's going to cost X plus 30%, right? How much money is involved before you get a deal to the closing table with you know, these, the renderings or any, any rough sketches and any, any other due diligence costs? You know, I would tell you that from my standpoint, you're usually hoping 
that you're getting most of this kind of rough work for free from an architect. And the reason you're going to do that is you're going to basically guarantee that you will hire them for the work once you acquire the asset. So again, I think this comes with having great relationships with architect on previous projects where you can really leverage them to do some kind of upfront spec work for you. So I've never found that I've had to pay for kind of the initial spec work, but I have had to be mindful of not utilizing them until I really feel there's a good chance I'm going to do the deal. Because, you know, they might do it once or twice for you, but I've found that if you exercise them and you don't buy deals and give them that back business where you say, hey, you're going to do all this work, it's not like they're going to continue to give you the free spec work over and over again. And that makes sense for sure, especially if I'm an architect coming from that standpoint. What are they doing? What are the architects actually doing? Like, what's their deliverable? So usually on something like this, they'll do a you know a quick CAD. They'll probably do um, now nowadays. It's actually pretty cool the technology they have, so they can do in fairly short order some quick kind of 3D renderings of how things can look. But they're really going to lay stuff out. They're going to put together some materials for you of what they think it can cost, and they'll probably do a very quick plan, kind of laying out what they think with maybe an interior rendering. And then they're going to give that to a contractor. And then that contractor will then take that uh, and try to get it um, kind of preliminary price it out. And again, with a contractor, then usually the contractor do that for free because they think they're going to have a very good chance of getting the backside business. But you really want to make sure you choose a good contractor who um, doesn't give you the wrong numbers, right? And I've had that experience before, which is very difficult and frustrating. Now let's talk about, you said putting together an effective marketing plan. Mm Mm-hmm. What are some tips for how to do that? I think the first and foremost is you got to hire the right leasing brokers. Uh, I don't ever believe in doing the leasing myself or call it in-house. I always believe in hiring third-party you know, leasing brokers. And I think the first step is making sure you hire the right brokers, making sure you got the right people, you know, the right butts in the right seats, so to speak. Um, and I think that's from really knowing the market. I think that's from interviewing a lot of what you would think would be the best brokers in that market and really doing your due diligence to ensure that you're going to get a group that is going to focus on your asset, that's going to be seeing opportunities in the marketplace, and that's going to have your best interests at heart. That's not always easy, but I think that's really a critical component of that. I think it's then it's also working with the great architect and having a great architect who can lay out different floor plans, who can lay out different brochures, um, especially if you choose the right brokerage group, they can also do some pretty cool brochures and work with that architect to do cool renderings. And it's really about assembling the right team. And I think the first and foremost is choosing the right broker. Then I think it's about getting involved in the community of brokers and really putting yourself out there and creating a really clean and easy process, meaning you have the right attorney in place who can draft leases really quickly. You have a template LOI form that you've agreed to before you start sending letters of intent to potential tenants so that they can move through very quickly. You have a very quick approval process. So if it's me who has to approve deals, I'll tell them, here's the lease rates I want, here's the tenant improvements we can we budgeted, and within reason, you know, I'm gonna always approve deals in this range. So it's really just trying to create efficiencies so that you're viewed in the marketplace by tenant rep brokers and by tenants directly as somebody who will move quickly, somebody who will lease, who will will get the job done. I think it's having a simple, clean lease, not a lease that's, you know, a thousand pages. And I think it's making it very easy. 
And I think what the brokers do is really your goal is to choose the right brokers who find you the potential opportunities. And then my goal is once they bring that person to the building, ensuring that they have a very efficient, easy experience leasing space. And I think that's really kind of the the two-pronged approach I utilize. When you're interviewing the brokers, what questions are you asking them? You want to know how much experience they have. You want to know what listings they have in the marketplace. You want to know who really is going to work on the asset. And I think this is critically important. I'm a bigger believer in, I guess it's maybe because I'm a younger guy, 34. I don't like gray hair when I see leasing brokers. I want young, hungry guys who want to work on this asset, and they're going to treat the asset as one of the most important projects they have. And so I expect that they are you know, really motivated to get space leased. And I think what's important is you'll see a lot of times where a broker will come in and say, here's our team, and you want to know who actually on this, who's going to be doing the work, who's going to be showing up for tours, who's going to be canvassing the local markets. The other thing you want to know is how good are their relationships with tenant rep brokers? Do tenant rep brokers like bringing them business? Are they easy to deal with? I think that's really important. I think those are kind of the critical things I look for, right? I mean, do, do, do they know what they're talking about so they have the experience to be able to say, yeah, I've leased the space before? Are they in the market on the other assets, which I think can be a good thing? Who's really going to be working it, right? And then are they easy to deal with? Do people like them? Do people like doing business with them? I try to be somebody who people like doing business with. The worst thing to do would be hire a broker who's really the face of my property, who people don't like doing business with, right? Right. That's just knowing the area and knowing the reputation, right? Yeah, I think it's being in the market. I think it's talking to other brokers. I spend a lot of time building relationships with tenant rep brokers in the market. And so I'll ask, I'll call them because they don't want, you know, listing work usually because they'll only represent tenants. And what they'll tell me is, I don't like this guy, or I love working with this guy. That guy's really responsive. That guy's great to deal with. Or no, that guy isn't. And so I'll sit there and I'll, I'll use him. Right? When you are looking at a deal, you'd mentioned partnering with the architect so that they're doing some upfront work in anticipation of when the deal closes, you'll be working with them. Outside of that, what are what are the upfront costs that you incur on a deal that doesn't close? You know, traditionally, my due diligence costs, which you can't get spec, which you're going to have to spend, let's say, let me give you a perfect example, right? I worked on and just closed a asset where I bought it for $9.9 million. It was a value-add office project in the Inland Empire of Southern California. And our total due diligence costs were about $60,000 for that deal. And that was maybe $65,000. And that included the legal fees uh, to both work on the purchase and sale agreement and also the, the loan documents because we got a loan when we closed. That was the property condition report. That was the, we got a phase one, so we did an environmental report on the building. That was a zoning report. Uh, that was an updated ALTA survey. I'm trying to see what else. We had a, a group that comes in that I utilize where they uh, will check my Argus file uh, against all the leases. So they check all the leases to make sure everything is accurate from what was provided by the brokers. And I would say that's a fairly traditional cost. I mean, I've seen it as high as $150,000, but those are traditionally much larger deals. A lot of it will come down to legal fees as well in terms of that was with a joint venture with people that I had already invested in my deals before. 
So the legal fees were somewhat less for that. And the lender was also a lender we had worked with before. So the loan document fees were a little bit less. So let's say it was a new lender and a new new equity partners. I could have seen that total number probably closer to maybe 85000 maybe 80 to 85000 Does that make sense? That makes sense. John, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? The thing that I've always been told, and I, I think it's, uh, I 100% believe in based on what I've seen in the market in my 11 years of doing this, is you're making money when you buy, right? Basis is king. And that if you can buy for the right basis, if you, if, you, if you buy the property right for a price that makes good long-term sense, you can weather storms, you can weather challenges, you can weather a lot of issues. And I have seen that, you know, I've seen that a number of different times. And people have told me that, and through my own experience, I 100% believe that, that you, you always hear people, you always hear the end successes, right, when somebody sells, but you really believe that they really made their money when they bought the real estate because they obviously bought it with the right price, the right business plan, and had everything right. And that when I've seen people fail, it's because they bought it wrong. They put the wrong debt in place. They paid the wrong price for it. They had the wrong business plan. They hired the wrong brokers. And so at first, it was all going down the wrong road. So I think the best advice I've ever heard, and I totally agree with, is you make your money when you buy with the three properties that you've acquired now that you've established your own company, were those properties on the market or were they off-market deals? And if they were off-market, how'd you find them? So the first two deals I bought were both on-market deals that I had been tracking for. One was about two years. The other was about a year. And both of them were vacant office buildings where the seller had wanted to try to find what I would call an owner-user, so an, a, a tenant to purchase those buildings from them. Traditionally, tenants, when they buy their own buildings, will pay more than what an investor pays. I didn't think either one of them, they would find an owner-user that would buy them because they were larger in scale, and I thought they were more set up to buy as an investment where you'd buy them, clean them up, lease them, then sell them. So both those deals were on market, but they really were on market at very high prices, and I developed great relationships with both sales brokers, and over a period of time, eventually the sellers both capitulated and said, we just want to move through this quickly. And by me tracking the deals, spending the upfront time on it, I got the opportunity on both of them to work in and acquire them. The third deal was off market. I had been working with a broker uh, to identify properties in a certain area uh, that I told him I really wanted to buy in. He started calling bro- um, owners directly in that area um, and one owner happened to tell him, yeah, we would potentially be interested in selling. Um, so we made them an offer. We went back and forth a couple times and we agreed on a price. They wanted to sell it kind of quietly because they didn't want to go through a whole marketing process. They just, they knew what number they wanted and we were able to agree on that and they were fine with it. And I think that was just from identifying the right broker to work the right submarket and really being more open to saying, Hey, look, if I could find a deal with these parameters in this submarket, I would buy it. And he found me one and, you know, it worked and, you know, sounds a lot easier than it is, but um, that's how I was able to acquire that one. And last question, and then we'll go into the lightning round. You mentioned over a period of time, the seller came around on the first two deals. Mm-hmm. And then on the third one, you said you made them an offer and you went back and forth. How much time between start and finish where you were first 
started talking to the seller on the first two deals, sellers on the first two deals, and they actually, as you say, came around. How much time elapsed? So uh, on the first two deals, it was a while. I mean, one of them was about two years. You know, the second deal, that one went together really quickly. That one from the first initial discussion, so I think probably being an escrow, I mean, that was probably a three, probably about four weeks. It was quick because they basically said, they said, if, when we went back and forth, they finally came to me and said, look, really quickly, they said, if you get to this number, we'll sell. If you can't, we won't. And so I got to that number and they said, perfect. Okay. We'll draft the personal sale agreement. So it came together really, really quickly. So it, it's usually, I don't know if this answers your question, but what I found is, I mean, it can be so varied. You just got to be, I think in my business, I've just got to be constantly talking to brokers in the market, looking at deals, touring deals. I'll sometimes go tour deals that are on the market, not because I think I can acquire them, just because I know the broker will be there and it'll show that I'm being active and I'll ask him, hey, do you have anything else? Is there anything else we can go buy? So it's, I'm going to cocktail parties, I'm going to networking events, I'm calling brokers up, I'm taking them to lunch, taking them to Angels baseball games, right? I mean, it's our business is kind of a you know, never ending business. I happen to like it a lot. So all, and I like, I like the guys that I work with, so it's all great, but it's just a a constant process of staying in front of people. I think that's really important. I'm so glad that you mentioned the span of time because sometimes when, when we're working on these deals, you know, it takes a very long time and then sometimes it can take very quickly. And, you know, the, the dollar figures that you're working on, you know, it it can be worth waiting two years And, and clearly you're not stopping the press on everything else, but, you know, just kind of cultivating that relationship over two years to get that deal done. Yeah. I mean, it's, it takes a while, right? But you know what? It was one of those deals where I liked the real estate. I thought if they would sell for a certain price, you know, that it was definitely worth it. I had a belief that they would. And I just thought, look, I'll just keep tracking this. And, you know, lo and behold, they finally got to that point. And I said, I think this makes sense. So I think a lot of it is finding real estate deals that you like, or you say, Hey, I like that real estate, you know, and you come together on a price. So you know what your price is and then you stick to your guns. The other thing I found is there's times at which a property will come to market. You'll bid on it. Somebody will bid on it. They'll outbid you and you go, how are they going to pay that much? They kind of stay around the deal and then that buyer falls out. They can't perform. And then that deal will show back up again and they'll come back to it. The price you originally want to pay for it. So What I try to do is if I hear about a deal from a broker, I try to first say, do I like this real estate? Do I think it makes sense? Okay, what price do I like this real estate at? And try to get to that as quick as I can. And then it's just hopefully buy it for that, but then sometimes you don't, but then sometimes it comes back to you there. But it's having the discipline to know what your price is and the discipline to know I don't like that real estate or the discipline to say, I like that real estate, so I'm going to keep tracking it, if that makes sense. I said the last one would be the last question before we go into lightning round, but I have one more. I mean, I'm writing so many notes here. The tracking the deal process, you know, for two years, how are you staying in their ear and making sure that they remember you as far as the the one who wants to buy it for a certain price versus somebody else that they know that wants to buy it for a certain price for two years? I think I emailed that broker either once a month or every two months. I would just shoot him a quick email and just say, does your seller want to sell yet? The project's called Overland Court. Does your seller on Overland Court want to sell yet? Question mark. 
And I just send him those emails and he'd send me funny ones back. No, they're not ready yet. No, they're not ready yet. Right. And so, you know, it wasn't big, long phone calls. It wasn't, I want to meet. I mean, the beauty of email nowadays is, you know, it's really easy just to kind of, I would call it keep pinging, right? Just, just that little birdie chirping in his ear. So he knows I'm there. He knows I'm, I'm still willing to buy it. He knows what my price is and just sending them those quick little emails. And I built up a great rapport with the broker. And so I just, I kind of stayed on it and, you know, eventually it was, Hey, the persistence paid off. So, um, seemed to work out, but you know, it's not, I think once you come to the realization, Hey, look, this seller's not going to sell for the price you want, you know, it, you don't have to, you know, completely bug the person. So that's, what's funny is you say, Oh, John, you tracked it for two years. I'm like, how hard is it to send a one or two sentence line email to somebody? Right. And I kept it posted on my computer with the deal name on it. Right. So I kind of look at it every day and just kind of send them emails. How many post-its do you have of deals right now? I think I've got like six or seven right now. There's like two that I'm tracking pretty hard, and there's six or seven that I've got up on. Uh, now I've got a board, a, a whiteboard that I keep them on so I can kind of look at that all day, and I've got that. The other thing your listeners may want to look into, uh, this is a technology tip. There's a website and a platform that I found called pipedrive.com. It's a fantastic online deal tracking software program. You can download apps to your phone and to your iPad, and you can log on from really anywhere. That really makes it easy from a technology standpoint to track stuff. It's really cool software. Will you spell that? P-I-P-E-D-R-I-V-E dot com, PipeDrive. It's like 12 bucks a month. It's really easy, really clean, really easy to use. And it's just a nice... You know, I find a deal, I'll input it there, and then you can set reminders to follow up. You can, it'll track like what percentage of deals you look at and that you actually get and win. So um, it's, it's a pretty cool software program. You forgot to tell me that you're also PipeDrive CMO. Yeah, yeah I, I think I should be because I've told a ton of people about that. <laughs> you ready for the best ever lightning round? Yes, of course. First, a quick word from our best ever partners crowdfunding. You've heard about it and now it's time to learn about it. Our best ever sponsor, Patch of Land, is a leading expert in the crowdfunding space and they've got all the answers to your crowdfunding questions. Go to patchofland.com forward slash best ever and grab your copy of the top 10 answers to the top 10 crowdfunding questions. That's p-a-t-c-h-o-f-l-e-n-d.com forward slash best ever. Are you tired of being a landlord? Are you tired of wholesaling, flipping, rehab, headaches, thousands of investors have felt the same way. Go to 1000houses.com forward slash Mitch. That's the number 1000houses.com forward slash M-I-T-C-H. All right, John, best ever book you've read? Best ever book I read was A Man in Full by Thomas Wolfe. Best ever listeners, I know you like audio, so you can go to freebesteverbook.com and get a free audio version of a book like that. Best ever personal growth experience and what you learned from it probably running the Boston Marathon. And I learned that no matter what happens when times get tough, you just got to keep putting one foot in front of the other and you'll eventually reach your goal. Isn't that like a, a song too? Like a Disney song, one foot in front of the other? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Best ever success habit you practice? I try to work out each and every morning. I try to start the day with a workout. I'm not always successful, but the days that I do, I am successful. I, it feels like I feels like I already won. You know, when it's, you know, if I can get a workout in the morning, that makes me feel good. Keeps me focused. Best ever deal you've done? Best ever deal I've done. Best ever deal I did was I found a deal that we put under contract. It was a small office building that we put under contract. And while we were under contract, another buyer showed up 
and paid us $250,000 to essentially walk away. And so we didn't have to put any equity up and we basically made $250,000 to do nothing. It was a pretty good deal. My eyes are as big as saucers right now. What? How does that happen? And how do they know that you're, I guess they asked the seller if they wanted to sell and they're like, we're under contract. And like, who are you under contract with this group? No, so what happened was it was a small deal. We wanted, The seller picked us because they believed in our ability to close. The group that bought it was an owner-user. The seller didn't do their proper due diligence on them. The owner-user approached us and said, look, we wanted to buy this building. We would have paid more, but they thought we weren't real. They were a nonprofit group, and they showed up with their lender, with their, basically their, their what would I call it, um, their person who was going to put up the money, um, their donor, so to speak, and we had a meeting with them, and we said, look, okay, we feel comfortable, you can close. So we basically went into a dual escrow with them, uh, and then we closed on the building, and then literally five minutes later sold it to them. It's pretty crazy. So it was a small deal. It wasn't big, but it got to be the best deal because, you know, to make that kind of money in five minutes was not bad. Best ever project you're most excited about right now? The most excited project I have is the project that I bought in San Dimas, Overland Court. It's 175,000 square feet, two-building office project that's vacant that we're doing a bunch of improvement work to. It's got some vacant land that we're going to pave over to give office tenants uh, above standard parking. I think it's a really exciting asset because it's going to, I think, really, we're going to dramatically change without spending a ton of money, uh, the outsides and the insides of these buildings. And I'm just, I really feel like where the market is, we're going to, we're going to hit a home run on it. Best ever way you like to give back? I was a big brother for about four and a half years to Big Brothers Big Sisters of Orange County. Um, I really enjoyed that process a lot, uh, and I thought that was something that I did where uh, I worked with somebody that was from a disadvantaged neighborhood in Orange County and gave me a lot of clarity to understand how fortunate I've been in my own life. Best ever quote. A man looks into the abyss, and when he looks into the abyss, he sees nothing, but then he looks at himself. And that's when he finds his character. It's from the movie Wall Street. What's the biggest mistake you've made in real estate? I would say not doing my proper due diligence and not on people. And um, that's been a big mistake. I've been too trusting of people and I haven't checked people out more than I should have. And that's cost me. How do you do the background checks now? I think it's just when you're working with brokers, you're working with people who you don't personally know from deal level experience, it's doing everything you can to find people who do know them and hear about their reputation and find out what you need to know about them. So you're not running credit reports and any official documents? No, 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 no. I think it's more, you just want to know their reputation. And unfortunately, a couple of times I've gotten um, misled or screwed over because I I haven't done my proper due diligence. And that's that's upset me because that's my own fault. What's the best ever place to reach you? People get a hold of me, uh, email. My wife hates it, but email, email is always the best way. I guess I'm, uh, I was born in 1980, so I guess I'm at the, I'm the last year of millennials. So I am a millennial, barely. And I think our millennial generation is all about emails and texts. And for me, it's email. I'm, my wife hates it, but I, I check it constantly. You want to give your email out? Yeah, so it's J, D as in dog, R, A, C-H-M-A-N at stillwaterig.com. John, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your best ever advice with the best ever listeners and talking about office and industrial acquisitions, talking about how to do due diligence, how to turn properties around, how to, you know, giving sample case studies of, of what you've been doing. 
I mean, I've taken so many notes on this call. Some of the things that really stood out to me is putting together the marketing plan for how to add value to a property, having a solid marketing plan, which starts with having the right teams in place, getting involved in the community of brokers, making it a clean and easy process for the potential tenants. And then, you know, the other way that you were talking about in more detail is the lobby, just updating the interior of the property, because as you mentioned, it's less likely that you'll be able to really make dramatic changes to the exterior of office buildings. So looking at the interior and working with an architect and then going through talking about your due diligence process as you're making offers and how you partner with architects up front to do spec work. They give you the 3D renderings of how things look. They'll put together a quote and maybe an interior rendering as well. And then, you know, lastly, whenever you were giving your thoughts on the both due diligence, where you itemize out the different costs for what a sample deal looked like at a $9.9 million price tag. But then on that deal and other deals like it, how you track those deals, where you first ask, do I like this? And then what is the price I like it at? And then you follow through and then you follow up consistently. And I'm really glad we got to the part where you mentioned over a period of time, the seller came around. I'm glad I asked, well, what was that period of time? It was two years, two years. I think that's indicative of what it takes in some cases. Other cases, you know, as you mentioned, it was four weeks and it was really quick. But in some cases, it takes two years and being consistent and knowing what you're what your price is at and why you like it and then distracting the deal. So, and then also giving that reference to uh, pipe drive where the, you're the unofficial chief uh, ambassador of the company. So thank you so much. Very just educational conversation. And to close out, is there anything else you want to tell myself or the best ever listeners? I don't think so. I think our business is, you know, it can be a hard business. It can be a fun business that, you know, the highs are high, the lows can be low, but I think it's about knowing yourself. And the one thing I've always really liked about commercial real estate is it's not rocket science, right? It's it's not about being the smartest person out there. In a lot of ways, it's being the most persistent and the hardest working. And I think the harder you work in this business, the luckier you get. So I think it's a fantastic business. And I just love the tangible aspects of it. So I think uh, whatever you're working on, know your product type and market well and just stay at it and you'll be fine. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Best Ever Show. And we'll talk to you soon. Sounds great. Thank you. Hey, you, best ever listener. Do you want more? Then go to joefairless.com, where you'll get tons of free videos, templates, and content to help you get deals done. And remember to subscribe to the best ever show in iTunes, so you can keep getting your daily dose of the best real estate investing advice ever. 